Now, I had you open to Revelation 21. Here's why. For the past 30 weeks, 30 weeks, we have been walking through the gospel of John together, following Jesus together. And the last few weeks, we have been in John 11, where we have learned and seen the glorious truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so we looked at a number of things that, that, of what that means. And last week, we saw the shocking, glorious reality of, of Jesus speaking into death and calling forth Lazarus out of the tomb. And I've had some good questions this week regarding heaven. So regarding what comes next. So what is resurrection? You use the word glorification. What does that actually mean? We say heaven. What does that mean? So, so what we're doing is, on the one hand, this is kind of a part three to Jesus being the resurrection and the life. On the other hand, it's kind of a standalone series on, on heaven. So that's our focus this morning, and Lord willing, next time we're together. So, so with that said, you're with me in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read that text, set it before us, pray, and then we'll jump into a different type of sermon this morning than what our normal custom is here, walking through books of the Bible. We're actually going to cover the whole Bible, so that'll be fun. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3, for the sake of context. The same John, who wrote the gospel, writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Lord, we, we may have confusions or many ideas about what your cosmic eternal plan is. That when we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who took our sins on the cross, atoned for our sins, rose for our justification, we love those truths, Lord. And we pray that if there's any here who don't yet believe those truths, you would grant them faith and open their eyes. Give them new hearts. But Lord, we also don't fully understand what comes next. What, what happens after we die. So Lord, we, we pray that you would help us think well and wisely about what your Bible says. So that we could rejoice all the more because future glory is the anchored hope that you give to us. That we don't live for this world, we live for the next. We don't store up treasures in this world, we store up treasures in the next. And in the next world is when we are with you face to face. So Lord, help us think and understand, rejoice and hope. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts 
be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. What happens to Christians when they die? I wonder how you would answer that question. Now, notice I was specific. The focus and attention of our time together is not what happens to non-Christians when they die, though that will come up, and it will come up more next time when we focus on what resurrection is. But the question before us, and I wonder how you'd answer it, is what happens to Christians when they die, and what happens after that? I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. Now, to answer that question, and also with the lens that we've learned that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, to answer that question this morning is different. We have to traverse the pages of Scripture, beginning in Genesis and ending in Revelation, where I just read, and we have to fit these texts together to understand God's cosmic plan from creation to fall to recreation. And so our focus today is even on what it means when we say heaven. I wonder what comes to your mind. Uh, If you're like me, for for most of my life, well, for my life until I became a believer at the age of 21, was I I thought heaven was an eternal, disembodied experience of floating on clouds. I thought we were turned into little cherub, fat babies wearing diapers. I really thought Red Bull gave you wings. I'm not the smartest tool in the tool shed. But whatever our perspective of heaven is, many of us absorb the idea of what happens next through pop culture. We get our eschatology, our understanding of the end times, about about heaven from pop culture. As I said, Lord willing, next time we're going to be focusing on what resurrection is and what that means and how these fit together. So our focus this time is more on creation and where we go. Now, what I am not doing is I am not talking about the debated events that occur before Christ returns. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what happens if you, when a Christian dies and then what happens in the eternal state. So at the end of the end, which is actually the beginning that you'll see. So take notes. Here's the outline. Four points. Number one, creation. What can we learn about life before the fall? And we're going to look at some verses in Genesis 1 primarily and some references to Genesis 2. Then point number two, curse. What happened to creation? In the fall, and after the fall, and that's Genesis 3, that will take us to point number 3, cross. What has Jesus achieved for creation? We'll look at a handful of verses, but we'll, we'll camp on Romans 8 for a little bit. And all of that really leads us to point number 4, consummation. What can we expect from the eternal state? Creation, curse, cross, consummation, the flow of the biblical storyline, the meta-narrative from Genesis to Revelation, and we have a specific task of asking, what is the eternal state? But why is it this way? Of all the worlds that God could have created, all the plans of the gospel he could have 
put forth, this is best and wisest. There are no other options in that sense. So why this way? What can we learn? Point number one, creation. What can we learn about life before the fall? If you would, join me on the first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 and 31. Genesis chapter 1, and for the sake of time, verse 28, then down to 31. 28 reads, and God blessed them. He has, he has made Adam and Eve. He has made man in his own image. And God blessed them. And here's what God said. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue the earth, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. And for the sake of time, if I can summarize Genesis 2, the camera zooms in on the, the creation account and God creates a place of paradise. That's the, what the word Eden means. He creates a region called Eden and in Eden he makes a garden. The garden is on a high and lofty mountain. There's a water source there that divides and waters in the earth. There's fruit trees and other trees in this garden. And he puts Adam in this garden, the text says, to work it and keep it. Adam is designed as a gardener. His task is to cultivate the Garden of Eden to flourishing. And when you take your cues from the Bible story outside the garden... It's uninhabited and uninhabitable. And so the idea is that part of uh, Adam's task and Eve's would be to not just cultivate the Garden of Eden to flourishing, but expand the borders of the Garden of Eden. Let me give you the big idea up front, because why are we talking about Genesis 1 and 2? And God's creation before the fall. Why are we talking about the Garden of Eden? So that we can think about the eternal state. Aren't they at the opposite ends of the spectrum? Actually, no. Here's why. Here's the big idea up front. The Garden of Eden before the fall and relationship with God before the fall is the prototype of future glory, the prototype of future glory. So what we see happening in before the fall will lead us to understand what will happen in the eternal state. So we have to get hypothetical and speculative here for a moment. Because if you've read the Bible, you know what happens in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat the fruit, disobey God. They want to be their own gods. And so they are separated from God and they are 
rejected and ejected out of the garden into the wilderness and they are fallen. That's point number two. But you know where it's going. So hypothetically though, imagine for a moment what would have happened had they not fallen. Have you thought about that? Now when they were made in God's image and they were unfallen, they were uh, perfect. But they were not glorified. There's some distinctions there. The fall had not occurred, but think about this. What would have life have looked like when they had their children who also would have been unfallen? They would have been perfected, and their children had children, and as society grew, because that's what they were told to do, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, and have dominion not just over the earth, but over sea, birds, and every living thing that moves over the earth. They are vice regents and stewards of God. Well, what would have looked like? Consider today. The fall has happened. We live in a fallen world. Again, that's the next point. But even in this fallen world, humanity has advanced, not against sin, and we're not necessarily wiser. That could be argued the opposite. But what we do see is advances in medicine and technology, advances in travel, advances in the sciences, astronomy, geology, meteorology, oceanography, hydrology, horticulture, animal husbandry, city and regional planning, engineering, math, physics, chemistry, architecture, media, arts, economics, trade, culinary arts, and on you can go. You just pause and think about all those areas and we live in a fallen and cursed world, point number two, and yet, by God's common grace, humanity has advanced our quality of life, our understanding of the world and more. So we live in a fallen world, but God's common grace, human society has advanced, relatively speaking, in all areas of life. So then go back to our question, what if we had not fallen? What would have been like had Adam and Eve not fallen? The wisdom and intellect of Adam and Eve would have been light years advanced from the most intellectual mind to ever exist post-fall. Adam and Eve, in an unfallen state, would have had unparalleled wisdom and intellect, as would have had their children. And so as they would have built society their grandchildren, and so on, we can't even imagine how quickly and how far they would have exceeded as they walked with God, saw Him face to face, learned from God, and used ingenuity and wisdom and technology to cultivate the world to flourishing. Society would have advanced. Again, think about the command. God blessed them in in 128 of Genesis Fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, dominion. The garden of delight, that's what Eden means. The garden of delight was a beachhead, so to speak, for Adam and Eve to grow their family, to grow the garden, and for the garden to radiate. So the idea would be that eventually the garden of Eden, as it went across various ecosystems and environments, would have covered the entire earth. So God had a beachhead called a garden of delight, and they would have had more children, 
and the garden would have grown, and in that way, the whole earth would have become Eden. And, just as a side, we learn later that the Garden of Eden is designed as a temple palace. But it's not a building, it's a garden. God worked there, and part of Adam's task was to lead the people in the worship of God, had they not fallen. And so the garden would have filled the earth. They would, in fact, grow and advance. Society would expand, and the whole earth would be Eden. And creation was very good. Nothing was bad. Nothing was wrong. God walked with them face to face. In Genesis 3, 8, he's walking around in the garden, and that would have been best of all. The best part of Eden was not Eden. The best part of Eden was God himself. Walking with his children, delighting in them and them in him. God has pleasure in his image bearers. As they delighted in him and he delighted in his creation. That is what we would have expected to see had the fall not occurred. And that leads us to the second point. The fall occurred. That didn't happen yet. That's what Adam should have done, but he didn't. So point number two, the curse. What happened to creation in the fall? Skip over to Genesis 3 with me, and let's pick up in verse 17. Now, Satan has come into the garden He's deceived Eve. She's eaten. Then she's given the fruit to Adam. They both have fallen. They have seen their fallenness. They've covered themselves with fig leaves. They've hidden themselves in the trees because they've heard the sound of God walking in the garden. He comes to them. God curses the serpent. And now he is issuing his punishment and curses, as it were, to Adam and Eve. Here it is in verse 17. We're looking at just what is said to Adam for the sake of time. And to Adam he said in verse 17, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, falling her into sin, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Here's the word. Cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain. You shall eat of it. All the days of your life. Thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. Until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Now, if we would have looked at what God had said to Eve, focused on pain and childbearing and strife and enmity in marriage between husband and wife, the words that pop with the curse is this, pain, thorns, and death. Now, we'll see more about death when we look at resurrection next time together. But this is what God's curse on creation brought, the The physiological, or or rather the physical world itself underwent a transformation because of Adam's sin. Now because humanity changed, because of sin and rebellion against God, every part of 
the human person, was now fallen. Every part of us was now infected by sin. Intellect, emotion, will, conscience, desires, words. Every part of us was now fallen, infected by sin, sorry and wrecked by the fall. And now, death entered creation. Death did not exist before the fall. Death entered creation. And death was not just for people. Adam and Eve, death now entered for all creation. The problems with the physical world are our fault. That's not a climate statement. That is a statement about our sin. That's because of what we see in the fallen world, animals, killing animals, hardship and death and um, destructive forces killing animals and famine and disease and killing people and hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and those things, those are all results of the fall. So death entered creation, not just for people, but all living creatures. Now, God's common grace still has allowed to humanity to advance, as I mentioned in the previous point, But war and disease and sickness and strife, what we think are normal, are entirely abnormal. Because they're not in Genesis 1 and 2. They're abnormal. And entropy. Entropy enters into creation. Meaning everything now decays and dies. Meaning everything moves from order to disorder, from chaos to death. That was Adam's fault. The shalom, the peace over creation, was now decay. By Genesis 9-2, the fear and dread of humans would be upon all creatures of all creation, and we would hunt them down, kill them, and eat them. But worst of all, that is all horrible. Those are all Awful things. Those are all real-time judgments of the effects of sin. But there's something worse than death. And what's worse than death is this. Eternal separation from God. The, what made Eden Eden was the presence of God. What makes the curse the curse is the absence of God. The worst thing about the fall is not sickness or death or the destruction of creation. The worst thing about the fall is our separation from God. We have lost the pleasure and glory of God's presence. We are now sentenced as humans to God's eternal wrath in hell. That is the worst news in all of existence. God is incensed. Smoke from his nostrils against our sin against him. And therefore, not just life in this hard world, but then when death happens, for those who reject him, we go to eternal death in the lake of fire. And here's the thing about death. And again, more next time together. What is death? You've heard me say this, but I'm going to have to say it again. Death is not cessation. That's what our world teaches you to think. It's to cease to exist or perhaps some uh, understanding of afterlife or karma or something like that. Death in the Bible is separation. Not cessation, it's separation. 
It's separation of your physical self from your spirit self, your soul. Body and soul, material and immaterial, are separated. That's what death is. But it's also separation from God. Eternal separation from the author of life. So that's what the curse has done. The entire created order has changed. Living creatures, inanimate objects, and all of it are affected and infected by sin and the fall and decay. But, Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, when God is cursing Satan, he's also giving the first promise of the gospel that a baby boy would be born to Eve, or a daughter of Eve, and this baby boy would be Adam Jr., he would be the last Adam. And he would undo all that Adam did. That's the promise of Genesis 3.15. A redeemer would come. And what would the redeemer redeem? The redeemer would reverse the curse. Undo death. Defeat Satan. And reconcile God's people to himself. Let me tell you that again. What you discern from Genesis 3.15 is that from the opening pages of the Bible, God is promising it's not always going to be like this. Adam Jr. is coming, and he is going to reverse the curse, undo death, defeat Satan, and reconcile God's people to himself. Now we speed ahead across the Bible, and later when we get to the prophets... They foretold that one of the works of this promised Redeemer, who'd reverse the curse, would be so profound and so extensive that, for example, Isaiah 65. Write that down. Isaiah 65, 17, and the next chapter, Isaiah 66, 22. In Isaiah 65, 17, Isaiah prophesies... For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. So Isaiah in 65 and in 66 promises a new heavens and a new earth. And if we leap way ahead again to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Why don't you join me there? 2 Peter chapter 3. If we peek ahead, we're thinking again. Point number two, what happened to creation in the fall? We're now, <clears throat> excuse me, also getting promises of what God would do. So in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13, listen to this. Peter says... The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... Christians, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting 
and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we, Christians, are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the promise across both Testaments, Old Testament and New, Isaiah and Peter, the promise all across Scripture is that a new creation is coming. And the new creation that is coming is going to be brought to us by the son of Adam, the last Adam, who will undo all that his dad did. The new creation is coming, a creation that will be brought about by the work of the Savior, a creation no longer fallen, a people no longer cursed, a creation no longer cursed, animals no longer cursed, mountains and waves and water and wind no longer cursed, because the Redeemer would redeem creation and his people. That leads us to the third point then, cross. What has Jesus achieved for creation? Now you can thumb over to Romans 8. We'll be there in a few moments. What has Jesus achieved for creation? We have seen creation. We've seen curse. And now we are seeing the cross. When God the Son clothed himself in flesh, Jesus lived in our place. Jesus died for our sins on the cross. He atoned for us. He's made, made us right with God for those who renounce their sin and believe in Jesus. But question, did Jesus stay dead? Did Jesus stay in the grave? No, he did not. He got up. You see, next time, Lord willing, we'll spend some time in 1 Corinthians 15, which teaches that if Jesus has not raised from the grave, we are still in our sins and still guilty before God. But rather, Jesus did rise from the grave and he rose for our justification. That is, by faith, when we trust Jesus and not ourselves, repent from our sins, Jesus makes it just if I'd never sinned and justified lived Christ's life. All his goodness is given to me, all my badness is put on him, and I'm all bad. And so are you. And he is all good. And that's why we need him. So God the Son becomes flesh. He lives in our place. He dies for our sins. But Jesus also rose from the dead for our justification as the first fruits of our resurrection. The Bible likes to use the word first fruits. What does that mean? When a uh, tree is producing its crop. The, the first crop to come is going to show you what the other apples are going to taste like. The other pears are going to taste like. So you eat the first one, you know what to expect as the crop continues to produce in its producing season. Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. But when Jesus rose, which was unexpected, there was also many other unexpected realities. Jesus' resurrection inaugurated, but did not consummate the new creation. 
I'm going to say that again, and we need to understand that. Because that's going to make sense of how your day is going to go tomorrow. When Jesus rose from the grave, he inaugurated or he started the new creation. Remember that we have, have heard that the curse will be reversed. A new creation is coming. A new heavens and new earth. New, new, new because of the work of the last Adam and Jesus is the last Adam. When Jesus rose from the grave, he started the new creation, but he didn't complete it. He didn't consummate it. What does that mean? It means that we, believers, live in an unexpected overlap of ages or of worlds. We live in the already but not yet. What does that mean? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When we renounce sin and trust Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins, what does the Bible say happens to you? Well, we saw in John, we are born again. But Paul tells us in Corinthians that we are made a new creation in Christ. Did you know that? Do you remember that? When the Bible says that when we believe, to call us a new creation is not just like, a nice metaphor. It's actually what we are. The promise is another age, not in the new age sense, but another era, an eternal era, an eternal state is coming of a new heavens, a new earth, and it's going to be populated by God's redeemed people glorified. And to be glorified is to have glorified souls and glorified bodies, physical and immaterial. When the Bible says that you're a new creation, this is what you need to understand. You now literally belong to the next creation. Your soul does. You no longer belong to this age, and this world is no longer your home. But unexpectedly, the curse has not been removed from the physical world. So right now, in your body... Your, your physical self is still a fallen body because of the curse. And our immaterial part of ourselves, our souls, is the new creation. So we ourselves in our personhood is an overlap. So we get older, we get sick, we will die unless the Lord returns. And yet our souls our new creation, and so we await, and again, peeking ahead to next time, we await new glorified bodies for the new creation. So we're still waiting for the new heavens and new earth. Our physical selves belong to this world. Our immaterial selves belong to the next world. And we still have remaining sin also. Your skin isn't bad. It's that sin nature that, or sin... Remaining sin that remains in us. This is the tension of the Christian life. We live in the in-between. It wasn't expected that Jesus would rise from the grave, and he did. And it wasn't expected that he would start the new creation. But we still await its consummation. Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. What has Jesus' death and resurrection achieved for creation? Listen to this description. It captures it so well. Romans 8, 18 to 25. The Apostle Paul says, 
I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, to to, to entropy, to, to emptiness, to the curse. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So all creation is groaning under the weight of sin and futility of the curse. And yet, verse 21 of Romans 8, creation itself is going to be glorified. Creation itself is going to be set free from the curse, from the bondage to decay, or it says here, bondage to corruption. And creation itself will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Lions and llamas and clownfish, and bugs, and rocks, and trees, and bushes, and coral reefs. Creation will not be glorified, Romans 8 tells us, until Christ's people are glorified in the resurrection. So that in between overlap period that we are in, we as God's people are waiting for new glorified bodies. And creation will not be freed from the curse until that day happens. So then, so then now we can actually begin to answer our questions that we asked at the beginning. What happens to the Christian when they die? When we die, we're separated The fallen physical self is put off and goes into the dust. But our new creation spirit, our born again self, the new creation is ushered right into the presence of Christ. So for example, 2 Corinthians 5, 6, 7, and 8. 5, 6, 7, 8. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. The apostle says... We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And to be in our body is to be away from Jesus. So, right now, in this in-between state that we're in, a person, so if 
If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to hear this clearly because this is, this is the horrible news. The person who hears the good news of Jesus and says no. The person who refuses to bow the knee to our King Savior. The person who rejects the gospel. That person, their body goes into the ground and their not new creation soul goes to hell. But the believer's body also goes into the ground, but our new creation self must go to be with Jesus because he's the first fruits of our resurrection and he's glorified almost magnetically. We're brought right to his presence, if you could describe it that way. But when, where is Jesus right now? We say, well, he's in heaven. That's true. But when we go there and we have, we are disembodied, our spirit is there, but not our bodies. This is not the final state. That's the intermediate state. Meaning, it's a temporary place. And that is crucial for you to get. Because pop culture and many Christians confuse the intermediate state with the final state. Heaven is being populated with the souls of believers and followers of God, and a day is coming when Christ will return. There's going to be a great white throne judgment, and as we've already seen, there will be a new creation. That's the final state. So right now, if you're to die and you're a believer, you go right to Christ. If you're to die and you're not a believer, you go right to hell, the place of punishment or to the place of pleasure. And that's crucial to realize it's temporary. It's the intermediate state. So when we think of heaven as a disembodied existence, it's temporary until the resurrection and great white throne judgment. God created his image bearers to live eternal embodied lives. If there's a notion in you that spirit is good and physical is bad, that's Plato, and that's not Plato, Plato. I just know there's some young people among us who might still play Plato. Plato, the philosopher, that's false. When God, people were not, image bearers were not image bearers until God breathed the spirit into our bodies and then said, that's very good. So that's now bringing us to our final question, almost. We are promised future resurrection. So last week when Jesus said in 11.25 of John, I am the resurrection and the life, he is saying so much more than what we're seeing here that he is the last Adam who is undoing the curse, killing death with his own death, defeating Satan and redeeming us to God. I am the resurrection and the life. Death is separation Resurrection is reunion. And when we're resurrected, we won't get fallen bodies again. When we get glorified bodies, what Romans 8.23 told us was the redemption of our bodies. Again, next time. But the intermediate state is intermediate. We live in the overlap and only temporary until we're reunited with glorified bodies. So here's the final question. For the final point, where then will we live 
for all eternity? You're already prepared to answer this question, but now let's go to where we began, Revelation 21, verse 1. Please join me there. We'll be here for a little bit. Consummation. What can we expect from the eternal state? I'm going to read a long text. We don't have time to read all of Revelation 21 and 22. Please do this afternoon. Listen to these snippets. Verse 1. Then I saw, Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Now skip to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And then he goes on to describe in detail the city. Look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now note this, and by its light, verse 24, will the ethne, the people groups, the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the ethne, the ethnic, the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of this river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the ethne, the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, that's because this is the Garden of Eden all over again yet infinitely better. 
right? The garden was a place of paradise on a mountain. A river flowed. Tree of life was there. The river flowed out of Eden. God walked with his people. Great high mountain. New earth. Garden city comes out. Garden city. Trees in the city, river in the city coming from the throne. Garden city of infinite paradise comes out of heaven. Tree of life is there. Triune God dwells, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also presented seen from a great and high mountain. If you look again at the first verse, 21.1, what do we see? The new heaven and the old heaven and old earth pass away. A new heaven and new earth are created Verse 22, 3, no more curse. So the curse on creation, because it's recreated, is removed. All the old things have passed away because Jesus, the last Adam, has conquered and risen and saved and redeemed. But we are also given not just a new heaven, a new earth. Did you see what John saw? The new Jerusalem, the garden city, comes down out of heaven to the earth. Now, if you've read this before, it's a strange scene. It's, it's, it has gems and jewels and streets of gold. Why? Because that was Eden. Read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 again. And you're going to see that gems, jewels, and gold are associated with Eden. And glory and more things. So this is Eden glorified from garden to garden city. There's no more curse. The city comes out of heaven and it's called the New Jerusalem because the old one is gone. Now, I didn't read the details, but it describes John walking with an angel measuring the dimensions of the city. You probably have a footnote in your Bible that's going to tell you the dimensions of this city coming out of heaven is roughly 1,380 miles. That's a big city. Not only is this city 1,380 miles long, it's 1,380 miles wide, but what's the other dimension? It's 1,380 miles tall. It's a cube. That's weird. It is. It's very strange. For example, that means that if this New Jerusalem was to settle down on America... That's no correlation between America and, I'm just giving you dimensions. Because America will be gone. When the city comes down, 1,380 miles means the city will go from Tijuana to Vancouver, British Columbia. 200 miles short. And the city will go from San Diego to Dallas also 200 miles short. That's a big city. In case you were wondering, because I know that you desperately are, the Garden City is 2,628,072,000 cubic miles of city. Basically, the size and dimensions of this, of this Garden City, the New Jerusalem, is... Um, 779 miles short of the same size as the moon. Now that's fun to think about, isn't it? But there's more going on here. Why do I say that? Did you know there are two other places in Scripture 
where an object has the perfectly same description as a perfectly same cube. And since scripture interprets scripture, and since scripture unfolds across a pattern that escalates and expands, do you know the only other place in all the universe described with the perfect dimensions of a cube? The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and then the Holy of Holies in the temple. That is the place where God dwells. So whether you take this as a literal city or apocalyptic literature describing something, however we take this, it's better than we take it. It would be far greater than we imagine. But what we see happening is that I believe Scripture is indicating heaven and earth will become one and the same. So this whole story is about when earth becomes heaven. Because the place of God comes down to now be on earth. How can we say that? Because what did God do with Adam and Eve before the fall? He walked with them in the garden. What does God do with all of us after the fall? Now redeemed, new heavens and new earth, walks with us in the garden city. And we are now to pack, excuse me, we're now back to where we began because remember the pre-fall garden was the prototype of our life and glory because of God's common grace. After the curse, we still saw human advancement. The question is, what will we do on the new earth? I believe for these reasons, what we saw in creation, what God allowed in the fall That means that eternal glory is going to look a lot like those things, but eternally better. I think a lot of us think that that heaven and eternal state is a disembodied worship service where for all eternity you're, you're bowing down and bowing down and singing. Now, if that's what it was, it would be glorious. It would be glorious because we forget who God is and what it's like to be in his presence, which we'll see in a few moments. But what will the new heavens and new earth look like? Let's take a field trip and go outside and walk around. That's what it's going to look like. The new heavens and new earth is going to look a lot like this earth, but beyond our wildest dreams. And what will life be like in the new heavens and new earth? Look around And see what humans do, and it'll be like that, but infinitely better, no curse, untainted by sin. How can I say that? Because in Revelation 21, 24 and 26, look at what it says. By its light, the city, the nations will walk. Where are the nations? They're cruising around outside the city, living life, being new creation Christians. That's what they're doing. We're the kings of the earth, and we're going to bring our glory into the city and out of the city, and its gates are never shut. There'll be no night there. They will bring their glory in and honor. They will bring their glory into it and the honor of all nations. The ethne are the resurrected and glorified people groups of all tribes, all tongues, all colors, all nations of the redeemed, living together and moving on the earth bringing our glory in and out of New Jerusalem. There are descriptions of eating, of fruit being born. So it's telling us that 
Well, at least the images is that we are going to be delighting in eating food in glory. And the rivers are flowing. And so rivers, at the very least, flow to large bodies of water like lakes or the ocean. When it says there's no more sea, that's idiomatic of peoples and rebellions against God and the writing prophets in the Old Testament. So I think there is going to be a sea, which then probably means there's going to be a hydrological cycle and more. It's going to look a lot like this, but beyond our wildest dreams. And we will be in glorified bodies next time to enjoy this creation. And a quick word here then is because I am arguing that you're going to work. I think that when we are in glory from garden to garden city and to have a city implies sciences and technology and arts and math and physics and city and regional planning. Because we will have life together without stain or spot of sin or curse or anything. Because these patterns, we will work. And a quick word on work. Work is cursed. That's why you don't like it. But God assigned Adam to work not after the fall, but before the fall. Work is good. Why? Because God worked in creation. And we are his creative image bearers to create and to cultivate to flourishing creation. And so we will be growing and harvesting and more science and technology and more. So work is fallen, but it's good. And so God assigned to Adam work. I believe that we will have work in, the, in glory, but it'll be glorious work. How that's going to work, I have no idea. But it's going to be there. But here's where we close. There's something infinitely better. That it, infinitely better than a creation that is gloriously beautiful. And the seasons and the colors of the leaves and the fruit and more. There is something better than the new glorified bodies that we will, we will see next time. There's something infinitely better than all the infinitely betters of the eternal state. And that is the glorious gift of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Glory is not glory without God. Heaven is where Christ is. Chapter 21, verses 3 through 6. What, what is it going to be like? Here's what it's going to be like. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 22.4, they will see his face, we will, and his name will be on our foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they, we, will reign forever and ever. I have a question for you. Are you thirsty for that water that Jesus freely gives? What makes heaven heaven is God himself, and when, friends, earth becomes heaven on that day, it is because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit himself, seeing and speaking with Jesus face to face together, I think Christ's laughter will resonate throughout the universe. What will it be like to be in God's presence? You'll never want to leave. How can I say that? Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. All the joy and pleasure that we have sought to extract from life will be to an infinite degree in the presence of God. You will never want to leave his presence. And yet his presence will radiate throughout the cosmos. So on the top of mountains and in the riverbed, and on the far green shores of glory, we will be in the fullness of his pleasure. Friends, our final state is to be with him finally and forever. Where the first day is the best and each day is better than next. If you don't know Christ, this is him speaking to you from his word to turn from your sins, be saved, believe, and come to this freedom. And dear church, this is what we live for. This is our hope. This is what we call people to, the salvation of our Savior, and the hope that we have that cannot be taken from us. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you that you have plans beyond our wildest dreams and designs that exceed even what have been attempted to explain here. Thank you, Lord for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, that what you have in store is beyond our wildest dreams. So, Lord, let us now anchor our hope at your throne, Lord Jesus. Trust in you and call other people to do the same, both our brothers and sisters in Christ and those who don't yet know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.